time to time, we'll hear a fine interview on other radio programs, then try and track down the guests for our show. This has often worked out splendidly when that guest has, in fact, spoken with us. It so happens I caught Charles Mann, the author of 1493 on KGO's John Buchanan show a few weeks back. I enjoyed that interview very much and thought it would be great for us to speak with him ourselves. Mr. Mann's a correspondent for The Atlantic, Science, and Wired. He's written for Vanity Fair, Fortune, and Smithsonian, among others, as well as for HBO and the television series Law & Order. Charles Mann's earlier effort, 1491, won the National Academy's Communication Award for Best Book of the Year. Radio Parallax is a show about science, technology, history, politics, and current events, or so we like to say anyway, and 1493 ties into all these themes to an uncommon degree. The Washington Post said Mann's book is jammed with facts and factoids, trivia, and moments of great insight. Said the Times of London, ranging freely across time and space, Mann's book is full of compelling stories, a tremendously provocative, learned, and surprising read. Since we agree wholeheartedly with the London Times and Washington Post, we're honored to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Charles Mann. Hi, it's great to be with you. In 1491, you wrote about the world before Columbus. In this book, 1493, you look at the events that took place after the old and new worlds got linked up, noting that it's perhaps more proper to think of the voyages of Columbus as one's not a discovery, but of creation, because for better or worse, in today's globalized world, that's, uh, it started back then. That's right. An important part of that is that we typically think of the terms of this sort of history as political and economic, and I want to argue that it's as much biological as anything else. It is indeed. You describe in vivid detail a lot of the changes that were wrought by what's been called the Columbian Exchange post-1493, and I'm gathering that a surprising amount of information about these events has been covered rather recently in in places like China. Absolutely. Well, I should first probably explain what the Columbian Exchange is. The term was invented by this wonderful historian, Alfred Crosby, in a book of the same name in the 1970s, which gives you some idea how recent this approach is. And what Crosby pointed out is that for 200 million years, the part of the world that we live in, the Western Hemisphere, and the rest of the world, you know, the the Eastern Hemisphere, were completely separated. There was almost no connection between them. And as a result, they developed completely different suites of plants and animals. And what Columbus did, in effect, was bring these two completely different sets of ecosystems together. He, they collided, and the ripples of that collision ricocheted throughout history and are still, you know, bouncing around today. And that's really what the book is about. There's one part of your interview with John Buchanan that really kind of um, surprised me, because it's not something people talk about very much. By almost any standards, Bolivia would have to be considered a backwater nation today, but back in the 1500s, a silver strike at Potosi, Bolivia, more or less made it the jewel of the Spanish crown. Can you talk about how Potosi changed Spain's place in Europe, and surprisingly, um, Chinese society? It's important to remember that at the time of Columbus, Europe, you know, what we think of as Western Europe, was a relatively poor part of the globe. The richest part was China, Japan, you know, East Asia. And in fact, remember, that was what Columbus was trying to do. He was trying to sail across the um, Atlantic to reach these much richer, much more sophisticated societies in China and Japan. And of course, the Americas were, were in the way. And the things that they were really looking for were riches, right? And what happened was they stumbled in Bolivia in this town that subsequently became called Potosi, the richest silver strike in history by a huge margin. And over a period of about 150 years, the amount of precious metals in the world doubled, even tripled. Nobody's really quite sure how much it was. It was just a vast, vast strike. And Europe, in any case, suddenly became wealthy. It was kind of like you know, that old television show, The Beverly Hillbillies. And <laughs> Europe suddenly 
like the Clampets in that television show, who suddenly acquired oil money, went out shopping. And one of the things it did was to go to China and to Japan and places like that and buy silk and porcelain and slaves and spices and all the things that it had wanted, all these, all these luxury goods. And this began the period of globalization as silver from Potosi and also from Mexico, because they found a huge strike in Mexico as well, went across the Pacific to Manila, uh, Spain's entrepot in the, in, the, in the Philippines, where they met up with Chinese ships and you know, ships from all over Asia. They brought back silk and spices and slaves and porcelain, walked it across Mexico, together with more of this silver, went across the Atlantic, um, were dumping all of this stuff into, into Europe. Then they took horses and things like that, took them to Africa, where they exchanged them for slaves, which were brought to the Americas to mine silver. And the, the result was that for the first time, the entire world was linked you know, globally into a single economic exchange. And that was really the beginning of, of, of globalization. What it also meant was that there was also an ecological globalization because on these ships, mainly Spanish ships, but also, you know, other European ships, were all kinds of hidden passengers, passengers that the Europeans didn't think much about. And these were plants and animals and diseases and every kind of imaginable biological phenomenon. I gather, too, from reading in your book that China was just looking for something as a medium of exchange, and boy, when that Spanish silver showed up, it just, everything changed. Yeah. The interesting thing is that China invented paper money way ahead of everybody else. Um, you know, they've seen it back in the 10th century. And uh, along about that time, they also invented hyperinflation. So they invented money that nobody trusted. And what people trusted in China was silver. Unfortunately, China doesn't have very much silver. There's need to do everything in silver, and this lack of silver led to a kind of a crisis that was resolved rather unexpectedly in the 16th century when Spain showed up with these ships full of silver. And up to that point, the Europeans who had shown up um, in, in China, they're kind of, the Chinese sort of thought of them like hobos. I mean, <laughs> the main industry in 15th century Europe was textiles. The main textile was wool. And so <laughs> these Spaniards would show up, uh, Portuguese would show up uh, with their ships full of essentially, you know, scratchy 16th century bathrobes and try to trade them to the Chinese. And the Chinese would say, wait, we have silk. We don't want this. And the, you know, archives in Spain are full of stuff. They, we don't make anything they want. They don't want any of our stuff. And, of course, the Europeans wanted their stuff. And this was all resolved when they suddenly showed up with a silver, which, from the Chinese point of view, the Europeans were showing up with shiploads of money. It's like these guys who had been hobos before suddenly opened up their suitcases and they were full of $100 bills. And the Chinese held their noses and said, okay, we'll trade. And this had enormous ramifications. Well, you always think about how Columbus was looking for the old world and, and stumbled into the new world, but it, it struck me in reading your book that, in essence, he really did open up the, the trade, but by finding the new world, found the money in it for which people then take the Spanish galleon trade over to the Philippines and, and, and uh, engage in that trade. The Chinese um, have been worried about this whole thing because they were worried that foreigners are going to come in and foreign influence is going to upset everything. And the answer was, that's exactly what happened. They were quite right to worry about this. And one of the big things that happened was that uh, these European and American crops came to China, particularly American crops, and particularly the sweet potato um, and maize or corn. And uh, China, if you remember, you know, the prestige food was really rice. Um, and rice has to be grown in swimming pools, essentially, in very, very shallow swimming pools, rice paddies. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, China doesn't have very much water. If you look at the map of China, there's no big lakes in it. You know, we, they don't have any equivalent to our Great Lakes. Instead, they have these two big rivers, 
um, the Yangtze River and the Yellow River. And then, you know, a huge chunk of the country is dry hills with practically very, very little water in them. And you can't grow rice there. And so those areas were, from the Chinese point of view, you know, not very good. You know, half the country wasn't of much use. Sweet potatoes and maize or corn can be grown, you know, practically anywhere. They're incredibly adaptable. And they were the first dry land crop that, you know, was really a major staple crop that had shown up in China. And as a result, there was this tremendous push westward from China, where the Han Chinese, who were the main ethnic group, you know, the people we think of as Chinese, started kicking out all these minority groups that were in the West and sending over whole villages full of, of Han and telling them to go and plant sweet potatoes and uh, corn. And so even as in the United States there was this kind of go west young man and people were pouring into the American West, there was this you know, a slightly different time, but a parallel movement into the west of China. And just as the movement west in the United States had huge political and economic impacts, so did it in China. Well, I gather these new crops uh, certainly helped feed the multitudes in China and increased their population tremendously, but I just was unaware of the, the extensive environmental degradation that, that also took place. Yeah, well, this was all new to the Chinese. They you know, hadn't really farmed these areas before. If they did, they farmed crops like indigo, which you know, there's limited market for, and so you don't do it. So they began this wholesale clearing of these relatively dry hills. And uh, now it does rain there occasionally. And what happens when you clear these areas and you plant corn or, you know, or, or, or whatever you're, you're planting, you increase erosion. And when it rains, the sediment goes down the hill and into a creek, and then the creek goes into a stream, and the stream goes into a river, and it ends up all piling up into the Yellow River, the Yangtze River. And so this sediment, which is this eroded sediment, really huge amounts of it starts pouring down the river. And a a curious thing about this in rivers, there's a sort of a physics involved. As long as the river is tumbling along, you know, going pretty fast, the sediment stays suspended in the water, and it just, you know, carries along. But the instant it went into the North China Plains, which is one of the areas in the east, which is one of China's relatively few well-watered flat areas, the river slows down and the sediment precipitates out and goes into the bottom. And you get this curious phenomenon where the bottom of the river starts going, mounting up and up, and eventually the river gets higher than the surrounding land. And there are parts of the Yellow River that today are 30 or 40 feet above the surrounding land. And you don't have to have a Ph.D. in physics to realize that this is incredibly unstable to have a giant river floating 30 feet in the air. And the result is the river wants to go down, and it will flood at the drop of a hat. And so there was this disastrous floods that were caused by this kind of erosion into China's agricultural heartland, just enormous numbers of them. And uh, one of the pleasures of writing this book, or the most interesting parts of it, was I went to China and I went to the State Meteorological Bureau, and there they have um, these flood maps where every county in China, you know, a zillion counties, was constrained to send reports of what went on in their county to the um, imperial court. Mm-hmm. So they would record, you know, if there was a flood or whatever, and the meteorologists had put all these together into these maps, these yearly maps for 700 years of what had happened in China. And, you know, around about the beginning of the 19th century, it just goes crazy, the number of floods there. It was just mind-boggling from an American point of view. And I was talking to one of the guys, and he said, you know, how can I explain this? Because Americans have had no experience of this. And he just said, think of it as a Katrina every month for 100 years. Wow. And in this crazy way, this sort of shin bone connected to the leg bone way, it all goes back to Columbus. I'd like to return back to the Potosi moment. I happened to visit that city back in 1994. It was a fascinating visit. 
or I was told when I was there that many of the African slaves who were brought to work in the ore deposits, they escaped, got down to lower altitudes, and their descendants were still living. I was quite skeptical when I heard this, but later in the trip I encountered villages of black people in the hinterlands in Bolivia. You spent a great deal of time in the book discussing how pervasive these communities of escaped slaves were in the New World, and it was quite eye-opening. It seems to me this is something that historians perhaps have glossed over for centuries despite their obvious importance. Yeah, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about, because if you think about it, you know, just strictly from a sort of a numbers point of view, there are vastly more Africans than Europeans who came over to the Americas up until the late 19th century. By, you know, say, 1825 or something like that, roughly four times as many Africans had come to the United States as, uh, as, as Europeans. So what really was happening there, you know, sort of on the trenches, you know, demographically speaking, was the meeting of Africa and the remaining parts of Native America, with Europeans playing this demographically peripheral role. And if you think about it, in places like South America, you know, particularly the northern part where it's you know, a whole lot of tropical forests or, or very, very high mountains, these were environments that were quite unfamiliar to Europeans, and they couldn't exert very much control over them. And especially in Brazil and the tropical forests, there were environments of the sort that were quite familiar to Africans. And so huge numbers of, of, of slaves escaped. And in the Andes, where Spain could barely hold on to control, it was also very difficult to you know, keep people who wanted to escape from not escaping. And so as a result, these areas you know, were effectively resettled, if that's the right word, by these um, escape bands of, of slaves that were called different things in different uh, countries. And all throughout Latin America, you'll find the descendants of these communities. And some of them are still quite important. A real eye-opener from 1493 is, is to take, a, I think, a revised look at the European settlements in the New World and, and really why they did so poorly in tropical regions. Europeans did fine in the likes of Massachusetts or, or Canada, but uh, your sleuthing explains with a great deal of clarity how it was that malaria and yellow fever uh, really created that huge bias in favor of bringing Africans to the New World. Yellow fever um, and malaria, which are both mosquito-borne diseases, didn't exist in the Americas before Columbus and they were brought over relatively quickly and accidentally um, by, by Europeans. And both of them need particular types of mosquitoes to spread. And you know, to make a long story short, both of them you know, rather quickly found them in the, in the Americas. And the thing is that malaria just makes people sick, or for, you know, tremendously sick for long periods of time. There's no cure for it um, then. And so when, say you're a Virginia, um, planter and you wanted to bring over an indentured servant to work your land, well, what happened is they would come to Virginia and then they would get sick with malaria and they'd be sick for months and months and months, during which time you would have to nurse them. Um, and quite a large number of them died, you know, in different, different numbers of different places, but, you know, death rates of a third of the people coming over weren't, un, weren't uncommon. So you might have a total loss. Many, many Africans have um, mutations, you know, particular types of mutations, um, that makes them effectively immune to certain types of malaria and sort of half immune to other types of malaria. And then also, because that's the area yellow fever is, is from, yellow fever is like chickenpox. It's a disease that if you get when you're a child, it's not that bad and you have a lifelong immunity. If you get it when you're an adult, there's something like a 75% mortality. So Africa was the largest pool in the world of people who were immune to both yellow fever and malaria. And the great historian Philip Curtin sort of did the numbers and he concluded that it made sense, in purely economic sense, we're not talking about whether anything's right or wrong, but if you're just thinking in terms of numbers, you know, an African could be 
cost four times as much as an indentured servant and still be, economically speaking, a good thing to get. And so there's a kind of a heavy thumb on the scale pushing these people towards adoption of uh, slavery. One really fascinating aspect of your book, it's a, it's a bit of a speculation you make, but it, it's so interesting. Uh, you note that in the New World, fire was used to clear the land. And uh, we experienced worldwide a chill in the 1600s, and you speculate that perhaps with the, the, the decimation of the native populations and the discontinuance of this firing of the forests, that uh, perhaps all that carbon fixation is doing the opposite of what's happening today and, and created a great chill. Yeah, I should say it's not just me. There's a lot of scientists who are arguing this, and that it's, it's no longer just speculation. It's moving into, it's, it's certainly a respectable argument. And what they observe is there, there's this thing called the Great Little Ice Age, and it was about a 250-year cold snap in which all kinds of crazy things that happened in Europe that no longer seem to happen, you know, giant winters, uh, parts of the North Sea freezing over, um, you know, the glaciers pushing out villages in Switzerland, you know, that kind of thing. Really, really intense winters of the sort that we just experienced in uh, New England, where I live, um, last winter. And this went on for about 250 50 years. At the same time, when scientists measure things like these little bubbles of Arctic gas in the, in the, the gas in the, um, in the ice in the, in the Arctic, they, they find that during that time, there was less carbon dioxide in the air. The speculation or the theory is that uh, there, there's some, something that caused less carbon dioxide to be in the air. And what it was was both the fact that native people, you know, millions and millions of them died in epidemics. They were accidentally brought over by, by Europeans, so they were no longer burning. And they reforested, the land reforested, and all these growing trees sucked carbon out of the air. And so the, there's no doubt that this happened, that there was tremendous die-off of Native people. It was the worst demographic catastrophe in human history, and it was also another part of this Columbian exchange, is these disease organisms that existed in Europe and Asia and Africa were suddenly brought over to the Americas. And there's also no doubt that there was a tremendous reforestation. The question is, how much of an impact did that have on, you know, on, the, on the climate? And there's a good lively argument about that, that effectively Columbus, you know, led to, created a series of events that led to this 250-year cold snap, and another example of why increasingly people were saying that globalization began with Columbus. It's also fascinating to me that if we can stop cutting down all of our forests and let them grow back, we might be able to mitigate a lot of this uh, increase in CO2. Quite, quite fascinating. Yeah, although there, the amount of regrowth that took place um, was absolutely massive. I yeah. mean, the, the, over time, the East Coast forest, for example, has mostly regenerated from you know, the, the cutting that was inflicted on it in the, um, 17th, in, the, in the 18th and 19th century. And so there's not as, probably as much room to re- regenerate, but the, 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 the principle is, is still there. If we yeah. did a massive amount of reforestation, that would, have, that would have an impact on the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. The devil's always in the details. You do mention at one, another point in the book that the Chinese have been planting a lot of trees, but, the, but unfortunately they're all dying. Right, you have to plant the right kind of trees. <laughs> You describe in this book how, how tobacco really changed everything in, in the English colonies. It was uh, wildly successful as the drug just, you know, took the world by storm. Uh, we often think of the opium trade as being lucrative if, if somewhat shady, but I guess tobacco might really have set the standard for profitable addicting substances. Right. It was, if you think about it, it's an ideal commodity. Um, pretty cheap to grow, pretty easy to preserve, pretty easy to package, and uh, wildly fun to use. <laughs> Makes you look very cool. And it's addictive. <laughs> 
<laughs> what, what, what could be better in terms of if you wanted to sell something? Sort of stepping back a bit, what happened is England wants to set up these, these colonies. You know, the Spain's got colonies, and they're getting riches from them. Portugal's got colonies, and they're getting riches from them. France has its colonies, so England's got to have its, its colonies. And they, they kind of think that if you just go there, there's going to be, you know, Aztec empires or Inca empires all over the place that you can conquer. And failing that, the English have a misapprehension about how big the United States is. Mm-hmm. They think it's a skinny little place. You know, there's this sort of long band that you know, cuts across the, the, the globe. It's just you know, a couple hundred miles wide. And then on the other side, there's the Pacific, and you can sail across to China, which is what they're all heading for. So for both these reasons, they decide to set up a colony um, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay, Bay Area. That's Jamestown. And what they're going to do is they're going to look for gold and silver, which they assume is around there, and they're going to use it as a base to walk across the continent, set up the real colony, which is going to be on the Pacific, and that's going to take them to places where Spain and, uh, and uh, Portugal are getting all this great silk and porcelain. That's a luxury good that everybody wants. And as you can think about it, there's going to be a few things wrong with this. One, there aren't huge gold and silver deposits you know, in, in the Chesapeake Bay, mm-hmm. and the United States, North America, is really, really wide. 3,500 miles wide. It's not 200 miles wide. And so both parts of this land just simply aren't going to go. And so now you have this tremendous expense. You've set up this colony. What are you going to do with it? And the, the, so the people of Jamestown, you know, try everything. They try making glass. They try making wine. They try, you know, growing this. They, they, they try selling timber. They, you know, everything, furs, everything you can imagine. And what they hit on is tobacco. And suddenly the entire colony becomes this, basically a giant tobacco factory that's, that's sending huge amounts of this stuff and addicting you know, as many people as they possibly can in England. It's a wildly successful. <laughs> well, there was one part of the Americas that was quite thin down in Panama. Just a, just a very small thing you had in the book, which I thought was quite, quite entertaining, was that Scotland tried to settle Panama, reasoning rather correctly that it would be the crossroads in the Americas, but this, uh, this was a spectacular failure. And I gather from your book, contributed to Scotland joining up England in the political union of Great Britain. Uh, I just told the story to a young yeah. man from Scotland, and he was quite intrigued. Yeah, no, it's 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 completely true. They, um, you know, the Scottish were separate from England. They, you know, they had the same king at the time, but the idea is they were two separate nations. And England is always pushing them to unite, and the Scots didn't want to do that because they were afraid that they would be completely dominated by the larger nation to the south, which is actually quite a reasonable fear. You know, they, 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 the whole nation falls in love with this guy named Patterson who says, you know, we've got to have a colonial enterprise. Let's grab Panama, which is going to be this sort of crossroads. And he's completely right about this. And if we can, if we can control this crossroads, we can, you know, essentially have a toll on all this um, global traffic. And so um, they, <laughs> in the late 18th century, they send over all these people who all you know, huge portion of them very quickly die of yellow fever and malaria. It's a complete catastrophe, and it's a very, very expensive catastrophe. Something like a, you know, a quarter, maybe even a third of all the investment capital in Scotland vanishes without a trace in, in this debacle. Yeah. And the result is you know, an enormous economic calamity that essentially drives the Scottish people to go to England and say, please, we're in such dire economic straits, we'll do anything, we'll even join with you. <laughs> it's amazing. Before I read 1493, I don't think it would have ever occurred to me that there's three elements needed for a modern society. I'm sure I would have recognized fossil fuels, and I'm sure I would have recognized steel, but I would not have uh, looked at rubber. Can you explain just how important this substance is to our industrial society? 
Well, there's a couple of things, reasons that rubber is working. And rubber really means um, the type of chemicals that are, that rubber is the, the most famous example. These are called elastomers. Without elastomers which will, or rubber, you really can't have an engine. For example, you know, engines need coolant, and you need to transport the coolant to the engine. But if you do this by joining together all these metal parts without any kind of gaskets, what's going to happen is they're going to, the engine's going to vibrate itself to pieces, will lose all the, the, the fluid. You just can't have a steam engine without some kind of rubber gasket and rubber tubes and all these parts. You also need rubber belts to transmit the power. And if you're going to have any kind of vehicle, and I think most Americans would agree that vehicles are pretty important, you need to have a tire. I don't know if you have ever gone to um, any place with old bicycles that you can rent, but there's a kind of <laughs> old bicycle that existed before um, the invention of the, the rubber tire, and mm-hmm. they're called bone shakers. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're a, how can I phrase this delicately? If you're a guy, you will notice very quickly some of the drawbacks to having this extremely hard thing smashing between your legs, which is the seat as, as it hits every single cobble in the road. Basically, without rubber, the Industrial Revolution um, would come to a, you know, a, literally to a screeching halt. You, you go in great detail in the book about the saga of rubber, both in, in uh, the New World and in Southeast Asia, and my God, it, it influenced politics and events everywhere, and still is. Well, you know, it's one of those things, even though we don't think about it very much, because it's so important... You know, nations very quickly realized that it was a big deal. Fossil fuels, coal and uh, gas and oil, are found all over the world. You know, there's huge coal deposits in England, in the United States, in France, Germany, you know, everywhere you can, you can go. There's lots and lots of them. And the same thing is true for iron, which is the basic raw material for steel. And so almost any place can make the first two ingredients for the Industrial Revolution, steel and fossil fuels. The third one, though, you can't. And almost all the rubber now used a natural rubber, um, comes from a single species of tree. Havea brasiliensis is the Latin name. And you hear that Brazil, it's from Brazil, it's from the Amazon. And it's a tropical tree. It won't grow in places like the United States. So these nations found that their industrial development was dependent on this chemical from Brazil. And they scrambled to try to control Brazil, and they fell on their faces um, until... Uh, the British sponsored this guy named Henry Wickham, who was a sort of international vagabond, to go and, from the Brazilian point of view, steal 70,000 rubber <laughs> seeds, which he took up to Kew Gardens, and they sprouted them, and then took the sprouts to Sri Lanka, which was then the British colony of Ceylon, and gradually they moved them over to other European colonies in Southeast Asia, and now roughly an area the size of Great Britain in Southeast Asia, you know, Malaysia and Cambodia and Thailand, a little bit of India, um, Laos, and even a little tiny bit of China, are covered with giant plantations of Havea brasiliensis, this Brazilian tree. Well, as we wrap up, I would say it's not necessarily exactly a prediction you make in your book, but you do point out that if you take a, a species like this from Brazil through Mr. Wickham and put it all over Southeast Asia, your, your genetics are quite narrow, and that if in the future something like what happened to Ireland in the 1830s, a, a pest gets over there, this could really spell disaster for the, uh, the Asian rubber industry. Absolutely. The, so you have this huge area which is covered with, they're, they're literally clones of the very few um, trees that this guy Henry Wickham brought over. There's probably less than 100 trees, fewer than 100 trees, and now covering this enormous area, clones of these um, trees. And uh, there's this fungus in Brazil 
called the South American leaf blight that basically makes it impossible, so far as we know, to have any kind of large-scale plantation in Brazil, Central America, or the Caribbean, which is why you know, almost none of the natural rubber that's produced comes, comes from there today. You know, this didn't matter when there was very little communication between Brazil and, uh, and, and Southeast Asia. But the first direct flight between Sao Paulo and Southeast Asia, Singapore, opened up in 2011. I gather there are plans to have more direct flights from Bangkok and, uh, and, and so forth. And sooner or later, South American leaf blight will somehow make its way over in the way these, these things do, right? Right. Nobody would ever have thought that anybody could have a bowl in the United States, and look what happened. And when that happens, a very large part of Southeast Asia will suddenly die off these, these forests, and that will be an economic and ecological catastrophe. Well, I have to say, I agree, it's, it's not a matter of so much of, of if, it's a matter of when. We'll have to see. Final question I have for you. I was surprised again and again in reading your book, as, as evidently a lot of other readers, about these these facts that you uncovered. I, I'm wondering, um, what surprised you the most about the things that you discovered during your, during your research? I have to say, the thing that's most surprising the most is probably something that sounds kind of homey. I live in western Massachusetts, and I was talking to somebody who's biologically knowledgeable, and they told me that um, none of the earthworms in New England were native. They were all imported. At the time of Columbus, there were no earthworms in the northern third of the United States and all of Canada. And the reason was that the Ice Age, the glaciers had squished them (laughs) and froze them and squished them. Uh And uh, earthworms don't get around very much. And so they were very, very slowly moving north and they hadn't reached here. And so what happened is Europeans brought them. And so all the earthworms that, you know, I fished with and I see in my garden and so forth are these exotic invaders. And in fact, the entire ecosystems where I, where I am, you know, the sugar maples and all the other New England trees, you know, developed in the absence of earthworms. And so there's this very slow motion ecological revolution taking place as these earthworms are totally changing everything. Wow. In fact, there's areas in the upper Midwest where they're trying to keep areas free of earthworms. <laughs> There's like the Minnesota Worm Watch and other organizations that are trying to tell, you know, fishermen, don't dump your worms and that kind of stuff. Wow. Well, we've been speaking with author Charles Mann about the book 1493, about which the New York Times book review said, Mann has managed the difficult task of telling a complicated story in engaging and clear prose while refusing to reduce its ambiguities to slogans. He's not a professional historian, but most professionals could learn a lot from the deft way he does this. I want to thank you very much for speaking with Mr. Mann. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, hope, I do hold out the hope that after I get around to reading 1491, perhaps you can return and discuss that with us as well. Oh, if you'd like, I'd be happy to. I'd love to. I'm interested in this stuff. I want to tell our, our listeners that, uh, you know, we're, we're just, we've just scratched the surface of what's in the book. We've sort of done a little, little, little of this, a little of that, but there's so much more there, and it's so entertaining, I just can't recommend it highly enough. Well, thank you. We come on this loop, John B. My grandfather and me around